So we are continuing our look at what lies ahead, and this is just an ongoing study of the end times or future things, what the Bible has to say about the end times. And by way of introduction, before we get to our topic today, I just want to mention once again, and I'm doing this primarily for the video and the live stream, but also for those of you here that may also watch some of the videos, we have gotten completely away from YouTube. Uh, both on the church's embedded videos as well as Not By Works. And uh, so the best way to find all of the Not By Works videos is just to go to notbyworks.org. Everything runs through the website. So no longer are we live streaming through YouTube. No longer are we posting videos uh, to YouTube. Uh, the, the Not By Works channel is still up at the moment, but they've banned five of our videos. I've got two strikes and three warnings. And so I couldn't post anything right now if I wanted to because I'm in, I'm in the penalty box or whatever. I'm in timeout. Um, yeah. What, what caused them, I'm just curious, what caused them to put you in the penalty box? Because they suppress the truth. Yes. Anytime yes. censorship happens, it's always a suppression of the truth. If they felt like they could win the argument based on the facts, they wouldn't have to censor. Yes. But it was five of the Spirit of the Antichrist videos uh, and so, and the thing is, they're going back now. The most recent one to be banned was six months old. It's like there's a delayed reaction or something. And so, based on the things they've said in the emails to me, telling me that I've, those videos have been banned, I know there are other videos with the same content that at some point they're going to eventually get to them, and those are going to be banned as well. So, um, I recorded a video just that I intend, once I'm able to post again, to post as one final video on the YouTube site to let all of our subscribers, we have a ton of subscribers at the Not By Works channel, just to let them know, hey, go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, stay in touch with us there. All the videos are there, all the podcasts are there, all the articles are there, everything you can get anywhere else you can get to from the website. So just remember notbyworks.org. And then one other quick announcement, uh, the book that we are uh, kind of going through is on the back table. If you don't have a copy, certainly feel free to pick one up. Those of you watching online uh, or watching the video uh, that's recorded uh, down the road, you can pick up a copy at the Not By Works store. Just again, go to notbyworks.org, click on the store, and then be sure and use the coupon code there, WLA, for what lies ahead, and make sure you get the best price for that. Um, so uh, as we talk about uh, what Jesus said about the end times, this is sort of a, a subset of our broader topic, what lies ahead. And uh, this is, of course, the 16th uh, session on that, and I don't know how long it'll go. There's uh, so much material uh, about the end times in Scripture. In fact, what percentage of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy? 16. All right, good. You're paying attention. 16%. That's right. Uh, so uh, contrary to the 84% club that completely ignores Bible prophecy, we teach the whole counsel of God. And uh, so I'm not sure how long this will last, but we've got a lot of material to cover. But in the midst of that... We have kind of camped out here for the last few weeks uh, on what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' teaching about the end times. And by the way, that's covered in chapter 13 of the book. So if you have the book and you want a detailed discussion of what we're talking about uh, right now, you can look at chapter 13. And one other quick reminder, uh, someone mentioned it's been a while since we did a Q&A, so I'm going to schedule our next Q&A for next Sunday. 
So be thinking about your questions. They don't have to relate only to the Olivet Discourse. In fact, we won't be through with our study of the Olivet Discourse by next week. But uh, during our 9 o'clock Bible study hour, we will do a Q&A. We'll still live stream it, and I'll make sure we repeat the questions. Um, but that'll be next Sunday. Looking forward to that. Always a great time. Always get some great questions, and I learn and, 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 and kind of uh, helps me uh, learn as well. So as we begin, again, talking about what Jesus said about the end times, I want to take you back in time a few hundred years uh, to the year 1782. In 1782, a man by the name of William Miller was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And as a young man, he was a farmer in Vermont. During the War of 1812, he served as a captain in the United States Army. Up until 1816, William Miller considered himself a deist, but he eventually became determined to search the scriptures for the truth and provide answers to skeptics. And after only two years of study in 1818, he came to the conclusion that Christ would return to establish his earthly kingdom around the year 1843. And he got this interpretation based on a misunderstanding of Daniel 8:14. He made several mistakes with the text. Um, but eventually he was convinced that the world, the end of the world would be happening very soon in his lifetime. Um, at first he kept quiet about his conclusions, but by the early 1830s he was preaching his message in churches. And in 1833 he was licensed by a Baptist church and his audience started to grow. Several developments led to an explosive growth of his ministry in 1838. He published a booklet called Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ about the year 1843. So he had pinpointed a date. He was convinced that the return of the Lord would happen somewhere between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. And uh, he began to take his message on the road to larger cities throughout New England. He hired a manager and a publicity agent. The largest tent in the country up to that point was purchased for his revival meetings, and thus what's called the Millerite movement was born. Speaking tours were launched, tracts, pamphlets, books, etc. Crowds grew and grew. More than 50,000 people, by some estimates, really caught on to his message, with millions more curious about what would transpire. As the date of uh, uh, that time frame approached, men and women changed their entire lives in anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men quit their jobs. Families gave away everything they owned. And many even sold their homes. Well, March 21st, 1844 came and went eventually, and nothing happened. And the disappointment felt was overwhelming. But then hope once again sprang to life, as is often the case in these situations. Somebody pointed out to uh, Miller that he had overlooked some verses. And uh, he, they, he discovered that he, there was going to be this tarrying time of seven months and ten days. And so on October 22, 1844, that became the new day that Christ would return. And people once again rallied with the slogan, the tenth day of the seventh month. And Miller was convinced the new date would be correct. He said, quote, I see glory in the seventh month. Thank the Lord, O oh my soul, I am almost home. So the excitement 
revived, the number of people living on the edge of eternity seemed to be greater than ever. People gathered in churches and on mountaintops. Normal life came to a standstill on the morning of October 22nd, 1844. Much of New England awaited the end of the world. Is that true, Gary? Do you remember that? Is that what it was like? Or? I was there with Fred. We were having yeah. a drink. You were, okay. <laughs> Blame it on Fred. Okay. Um, well, uh, of course, it didn't happen. And so they had to come up with another explanation. And so they explained that on that day, Jesus must have moved his seat at God's right hand into the holy place to, in, to begin an investigative judgment of all professing believers and uh, see who he needed to blot out of the, the Lamb's book of life. Well, obviously, it sort of fizzled, but the remnant of the Millerites eventually founded what is today called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, when we think about Seventh-day Adventists today, we tend to focus on the seventh day, and we're all aware that, of course, that group does not worship on Sunday but Saturday. But don't forget the term Adventist in their name. Uh, they believed in the second advent of Christ, and they had picked dates, and they came out of the Millerite uh, movement. Well, we know that the testimony of God's Word is that the day and the time of Christ's return is something that only God the Father knows, and He's not revealed. In Acts Chapter 1, the disciples asked Jesus after his resurrection, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? We've looked at this verse before. And, of course, he told them it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But it was this type of questioning and obsession with the kingdom that we've talked about that led the Lord to give the teaching that we now call the Olivet Discourse. The disciples eagerly wanted to know when Christ would return and usher in his kingdom. So we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus gave this teaching from atop the Mount of Olives. Discourse, of course, meaning just teaching or sermon. It occurred on Wednesday, just for review, on Wednesday of Passion Week. So if you remember the chronology there, we looked at it previously, but by Thursday night, he's celebrating the Passover in the upper room with the disciples, washing their feet, instituting the Lord's Supper. Then he goes off to the garden. He's betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, and laid in the tomb by a Sunday. So what lies ahead, we're focusing on an overview of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' teaching. What did Jesus have to say about the end times and his return? Uh, don't forget the underlying premise here is that the Olivet Discourse is wholly Jewish in nature. We looked at several reasons for that, but the church had not been born yet. In fact, the only reference to the church prior to this time was when Jesus said during his earthly ministry that he will build in the future his church upon Peter's proclamation that he is the Christ, Christ Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the church was yet future. Indeed, it would not be founded until 50 days after Christ's uh, resurrection. So, uh, the church is not referenced anywhere in the Olivet Discourse. And we're going to be getting into here in the next week or two uh, some passages that are often related to the church mistakenly. And I think you will see when we really look at the context clearly uh, that that is uh, not the case. So as we look at our end times chart that we've looked at a lot throughout these 16 
sessions, the Olivet Discourse focuses on this seven-year period. Because, as we said, the disciples asked, when will you come and establish your kingdom? What will be the sign of the end of this age and the coming of the kingdom? We know from the biblical record, which of course is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the disciples, as they entered Jerusalem that final week, thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 19. And so they had kingdom on the mind. They wanted uh, the kingdom to come to to establish perfect peace and righteousness and justice and in fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets had talked about. They wanted Jesus to release them from the shackles of Rome and uh, put in place his global kingdom. They wanted him to take the throne in the temple. But, of course, that wasn't God's timetable. So when Jesus began in the middle of that week to say some what they considered to be strange things, strange things about the temple and how it's going to be destroyed, uh, things to the nation of Israel and its leaders saying that they would not see Jesus again until they cried, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples started to piece together some things that frankly should have been clear because Jesus had had made it more and more clear the deeper into his three and a half year ministry he got. He, He more explicitly began to say that he's going to have to suffer and die, that he's going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So they certainly should have known it, but everything happens in the context. And of course, you know, Jesus and John the Baptist had both announced the kingdom was at hand. They put together the prophecies in the Old Testament like that of Zechariah and Malachi, and they knew that, hey, this kingdom must be coming, but they skipped over all of the suffering servant passages of the Old Testament prophets and really were ready to just fast-track the kingdom right into existence. So it's in this context now that Jesus is giving uh, this teaching about the Olivet Discourse. And because the question, of course, had nothing to do with the rapture, the rapture wasn't even revealed yet, Jesus had hinted at it the next day on Thursday in the upper room, uh, but by, the, by, by Wednesday and the time he's giving the Olivet Discourse, he hadn't even hinted at it. And it's not until after the church has started that we begin to get clear teaching about the doctrine of the rapture from the Apostle Paul. But the rapture wasn't even on the mind of anyone at this point, and nor was the church. They wanted to know about the kingdom. And as we've talked about in the early sessions of this, ser- this broader series on what lies ahead, uh, the kingdom message goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It is the unifying theme of Scripture. The, the fact that God is going to come back and make all things new, that He's going to you know, defeat Satan ultimately, and He's going to return the earth back to its rightful place that it had in the pre-fall uh, Garden of Eden. So the disciples were obsessed with the kingdom. They wanted to know about the kingdom, and their questions are about the kingdom. That being the case, obviously, the answer to the question, what will be the sign of your coming, is, is what Jesus is giving in this, in this message, and he's basically giving a seven years' worth of signs that will occur right before the second coming. So you see on the screen there, on the chart, uh, that the, the uh, tribulation takes us right up to the second coming. There's a seven-year period that is, di- that is discussed at length in Scripture. Remember, we talked several weeks ago about Daniel's 70th week or Daniel's 490-year plan, the final seven years of which have not been fulfilled. Um, and, and so we're talking about this time that is frequently called 
you know, the day of the Lord's wrath, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, Jeremiah calls it, the overflowing scourge, I think Zephaniah calls it that. So this is that seven-year period. So the Olivet Discourse parallels perfectly with, for example, Revelation 6 to 18. We looked at that last time, not last week because I wasn't here, but the last time. Uh, so go back and watch session 15 if you haven't, and you'll see the parallels chart that I gave between the, the first 14 verses of the Olivet Discourse and particularly Revelation chapter 6. Uh, so the Olivet Discourse is about that seven-year period. So if we kind of put up a similar chart, same basic structure, just a little bit different design, we know that this is not about the church age, and if you overlay the Olivet Discourse on top of this timetable, we said the first four, now we're looking primarily at Matthew's account, but remember it's also in Mark 13 and Luke 21. The first 14 verses of Matthew are general signs relating to the entire seven-year period. Then in the passage we're going to, the section that we're going to get to today, uh, he zeroes in and gives more detailed signs that relate to the second half of the tribulation. And then in verses 27 to 31, Christ comes back. And it is signs that immediately accompany his return. But all three of these sections are basically an answer to the question, what will be the sign of your coming? Tell us. We want to know. And we talked about how the fact that, as it turns out in God's timetable, the disciples to whom he was speaking did not end up experiencing the seven-year tribulation that Jesus talked about doesn't matter. That's normal for prophecy. Go back and look at all Old Testament prophecies. You know, the, the people in Isaiah's day did not experience the virgin giving birth to the Messiah. You know, the people in Micah's day didn't, didn't experience the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. It is very common for God through the prophets, and in this case God himself, to be giving prophecies to a representative group of people that won't actually come to fulfillment until sometime later. So Jesus was speaking to the believing disciples here as representatives of the believing nation of Israel. Remember, the church wasn't in existence yet, and he was letting them know what they, Israel, could look for. There's a, there's a contrast between Matthew 23 and Jesus' stern rebuke of the, the unbelieving Jewish leaders and Matthew 24 and 25, and Jesus basically giving the signs that the, those who will receive him when he comes need to know and need to see. Uh, so uh, the first 31 verses of Matthew 24 are, in essence, the answer uh, to the question. And, uh, and then in the coming weeks, we'll get to the rest of the Olivet Discourse, which is pretty exciting and which is where interpretations often go awry because Jesus shifts from answering the question to then exhortation and application. You know, what do they do with this information? What's the application of this? And he, and he gives all of those urgency parables, those, you know, get ready parables, be ready, be watchful, all of those parables. And that's where a lot of people mistakenly think, oh, he must be talking about the rapture. He's not. He's talking about uh, his return. And even though the, re the second coming of Christ will occur, according to Scripture, at a precise time, the end of the seven-year tribulation, nevertheless, Satan's deception through the Antichrist is going to be so strong and so powerful during that seven-year period that many will miss it. They, many will be deceived. Many will not be ready, even though they should. And that 
should not uh, be difficult for us to accept because the same thing happened with the first advent. Uh, as I've said many times, the prophecies related to the first advent of Christ were very detailed, very specific, and clearly the nation of Israel should have recognized him when he came, but they didn't. And the same thing will happen for some uh, the second time around, and that's why you see throughout the Olivet Discourse, Jesus repeated uh, exhortations to not be deceived, because deception will reach unprecedented heights during that final seven-year period. Uh, we know deception is getting worse and worse. We talked about that in the Spirit of the Antichrist series. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But it will uh, reach unprecedented heights when that man of sin, the Antichrist himself, takes over the world. So if we look at the outline uh, where we've been, we talked about the disciples' misplaced focus, their questions, and then the first 14 verses are general signs about the tribulation period. And we want to get uh, this time, uh, this morning, into the, the next section, part four, in my outline of the Olivet Discourse, which are detailed signs about the second half of the tribulation. So if we go back to our overlay, here's where we are in the process. So we're now, we've now moved from beyond just general signs characterizing that seven-year period into detailed signs that when they see these signs, they know it's getting close. So we'll start with verse uh, 15. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, it's getting serious. The clock is ticking. It's getting close. Now, this passage is very significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it's significant given the attacks by liberal critics who deny inerrancy on the book of Daniel because Jesus himself quotes Daniel by name and attributes the passage to Daniel. So that means that whatever else liberal scholars say about Daniel, Jesus, the Son of God, said Daniel wrote Daniel. And so I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. And so it gives, it just validates Daniel's prophecy. Uh, and the specific passage that Jesus quotes is from that famous section, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, where Daniel, speaking of the future Antichrist, talks about this moment at the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist is going to set himself up as God, demand worship, and at that moment, on earth anyway, it will become clear to those who were his subjects, which is the whole world, because he's going to be ruling a one-world system, it will become clear at that moment that he is, in fact, the Antichrist. Now, we will know, and anyone who's a believer at that time, maybe got saved after the rapture and knows the Bible, they will have identified him as the Antichrist by the mere fact that he's the one that signed the treaty starting the seven-year period. So that's how we know and how it can be known that he's the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be identified as the one who signs the treaty starting that final seven years in Daniel's 490-year uh, um, prophecy. But if you imagine things on earth, um, in fact, let me put this next chart up, uh, you'll notice in the, in the seven years there, right in the middle of the screen, the first uh, three and a half years are are uh, protection, 
our protection. And so, uh, you know, the, if, picture what's happened here just from a cultural perspective, a geopolitical perspective. You know, the rapture happens, hurtling the world into chaos, millions of people disappearing. And for some reason, my uh, slide is uh, has a mind of its own here. Uh, keeps changing on me. So um, anyway, uh, so the world's in chaos. There's some things that happen. You'll see that preparation period there on the left. Um, and, and, you know, that's when I think the Battle of Gog and Magog happens. We talked about that last time as well. But then the Antichrist is unveiled, I state there, because he signs the peace treaty according to Daniel 9.27. And so then things are somewhat normal. I mean, the world has changed forever and the world is, is not like it ever was before. Certainly the judgments of God are being poured out. There are cataclysmic supernatural events taking place. Um, and uh, so you see all sorts of uh, uh, things happening. But it's not until the midpoint when the direct oppression, persecution, tyranny, murder, pers uh, you know, torture of Christians begins to take place. Uh, and that's when the abomination of desolation takes place. So I don't know what's going on with that slide, but for some reason, I don't know. It might, I wonder if it's Gary's pacemaker that's interfering. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so uh, anyway, back to our text. Jesus, again, is saying, when you see that sign, the abomination of desolation, that Daniel had talked about, you know, 500 years earlier, you know it's getting serious. So he gives some more description here. And these verses describe really how horrific things will begin to be following the abomination of desolation. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take not go down and take anything into his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days just because if you're trying to flee the wrath of this antichrist it's going to be more difficult uh, if you're pregnant um, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the sabbath remember this is still a jewish context there were certain rules of what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And of course, in the winter, we know a little bit about winter around here. It's a little more difficult to just up and go, right? In the middle of the summer, you can decide on a whim, hey, let's just go camping or let's just go take a hike. In the winter, in the heart of the winter especially, if you decide you want to do something, what's the first thing you do? You, go, you call up your weather app and make sure there's not going to be a two-foot snowstorm coming in the next night. You know, that's the, that's the idea here. So, uh, he's saying when you see this, it's getting close because, he says, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Remember, this seven-year period is the climactic event of human history. It is the waning moments prior to the establishment of the kingdom. And in the only age to come, the reason the church age is called the last age is because the only age to come after the church age is the kingdom age. Uh, and we still have a thousand years on the old heaven and the old earth when Christ reigns. But when Christ takes the throne, the kingdom continues perpetually. So you go from the tribulation into the kingdom, a thousand years on the old earth, what we call the millennium, and then the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. And so... This is it. It's all ratcheting up. And that's why Jesus said there's never been anything like it. 
and we're going to see there's you know earthquakes like never before and you know all kinds of amazing things uh stunning things happening as the earth itself and this cosmic struggle between god and satan reaches its climax and it will ultimately uh end up in the battle of armageddon which happens in conjunction with the return of christ at the end of the seven years um now, some people, including some great scholars that, that I've sat under, uh, who are with the Lord now, uh, they really kind of focused in on this notion of great tribulation and almost turned that into a technical term so that you'll hear people refer to the seven years as the tribulation and the final three and a half years as the great tribulation. I think that's stretching the text a little bit. I don't think great tribulation is a technical term. I think Jesus is just talking about how the tribulation that they're already in will get worse, much worse, during these final uh, three and a half years. It's more of a descriptive term. And then notice, unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved. Now remember, we've talked a lot about this, and in the previous session, session 15, I spent quite a bit of time demonstrating that the word saved does not always mean eternally, heaven, hell. In fact, two-thirds of the time, of the 108 times it's used, it refers to physical, temporal deliverance, not eternal deliverance. So more often, much more often than not, and such is the case here. He's talking about physical lives, indicated also by the context of the word flesh. Um, now, he's not suggesting here that, you know, People might not go to heaven. He's just saying that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would end up surviving. That if they kept going unabated, eventually everyone on earth would die. That's how bad they're going to be. Um, also, those days were shortened. Some people have misunderstood that, especially from our English translations, and have tried to indicate that somehow the final three and a half years will be less than that. That this was Jesus saying that all of these references to... Uh, in Daniel to the three and a half years, 1260 days, uh, that, that now he's changing that by his own proclamation. Multiple problems with that. First of all, later revelation can never fundamentally change earlier revelation because that would make God a liar in the earlier revelation. Secondly, we have the book of Revelation, which comes well after the Olivet Discourse, 60 years after to be exact, that affirms the exact seven-year time factor. So he's not suggesting that. In fact, the word uh, shortened is the word uh, that means to terminate or to cut off. Uh, it does not mean make smaller. Um, and, and so this also could not mean, as some have suggested, that individual 24-hour days <coughs> will get shorter. <coughs> Neither of that, none of that. He's not talking about fundamentally changing the clock or changing the lunar cycle. He's not talking about shortening the seven-year tribulation, that 70th week of Daniel. He's just simply saying that unless those days came to an end, no flesh would survive. And then he says, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now that word elect is an interesting word. I take it that it refers to believing Israel. Um, I don't see this as necessarily a, some type of a Calvinistic nuance that, that they like uh, to point to. Uh, it's just referring to all believers at that time. And we don't have time to flesh that out, but in the book I give you several uh, cross-references that kind of make that point. What he's saying is, you know, 
uh, for my people who I'm about to enter into when the formal kingdom is inaugurated, this unprecedented time when I will be their God, they shall be my people, the fulfillment of God's kingdom promise. I'm going to put an end to it and we're going to move on. That's essentially what he's saying. Any questions about this verse, anything you've heard or that's come to mind as you've read it? Anybody? Don't hesitate to throw up your hand if you have questions. I know I go fast. And uh, just because we're having a dedicated Q&A next week, every session, we always are happy to answer uh, questions. So then moving on to verse 23, Jesus says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Same nuance there of uh, the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. All right, so he's, he's talking about how, as I said, and as he said, deception is going to be very prevalent in this time. And as it gets closer to that pivotal moment when Christ does return, deception is going to get worse and worse. The phrase, if possible there, doesn't mean that it is possible. In fact, in Greek, it's the idea that you know, many false prophets are going to hope to mislead saved people during the tribulation. They're going to hope to get them to take the mark of the beast, uh, but they're not going to be able to. It's almost like many false prophets will rise and try to deceive as if it were possible, even the elect. But, of course, it's not from God's perspective. Um, so it's certainly not suggesting, as Calvinists do, that only the truly elect that remain, are, are, that only those that remain true to the faith are somehow truly elect. Uh, it's, that's not what he's saying uh, at all. And so then he says, therefore, if they say to you, "Look, he is in the desert," do not go in. Look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Now we already see, by the way, uh, an uptick in our day in false messianic proclamations. And, of course, this has been true for, for many years, even centuries, but it just seems like it gets more and more prevalent. Human beings who proclaim themselves to be the Messiah and gain followers, and, and they, they drink the Kool-Aid, sometimes literally, right? So uh, as the, that's a foreshadowing or a setting of the stage for what's going to happen all over the world, during this time of chaos. You have to remember what it's going to be like in that time. Um, and, you know, we, I don't think we've experienced anything quite like it, not globally, but there have been pockets of it. Um, you know, you, you think about some of the atrocities that take place and are even taking place today in other parts of the world. I mean, those are very end-of-the-world apocalyptic scenarios, and people are just, I mean, the normal routine is gone. They're just fighting for their lives, right? And that's what it's going to be like, but globally. And so people are going to be popping up, taking advantage. You know, Satan's demons are going to be running to and fro throughout the earth, orchestrating his, you know, agenda. Um, the Antichrist is going to be, you know, ushering in the one world governmental system, the one world religious system, all of that. And in that context, a lot of people uh, under the influence of demonic you know, in, uh, because of demonic influence, are going to stand up and try to gain followers. Hey, I'm the Christ. Come with me. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. So you think that there will be like multiple antichrists at once, and like 
you can picture like a debate, like a Zoom debate. No, this is why I'm the Christ and you aren't, because this and this and this, or do you think they're going to sort of be at different points in time? No, my sense, and it's just speculation, is that it's, it's, it's sort of a both and. I definitely think Satan has an agenda, and we know from 1 John uh, that, that many Antichrists are already at work. Uh, even though the one capital A Antichrist is coming. That's the whole premise of Spirit of the Antichrist. And by the way, I'm working on volume one of that book based on the video series, and I'm just getting so excited and motivated. I want to kind of re redo the videos. So uh, don't be surprised if we end up kind of rehashing that a lot through this through this series. But uh, And I'm speaking on that uh, subject, by the way, in Tulsa next, uh, next month. Uh, but no, I think... Uh, I mean, could be. I think could there could be competing earthly agendas that aren't necessarily uh, locked into Satan's agenda. Remember, the, the Luciferian agenda is not monolithic, meaning it's not just one guy pulling the strings like a master puppeteer and everything happens exactly as he wants. If Satan was omniscient and omnipotent, he would have already ushered in the Satanic One World Order. The fact that he hasn't just shows... Of course, ultimately, that God's sovereignty is in control, and it's not God's timetable yet, but also because it's not easy. There are a lot of restraining influences over uh, the centuries uh, that Satan has been trying to usher in the one world system. He tried after World War I with the League of Nations. He tried after World War II with the United Nations. He's trying constantly. He's trying now with you know, all of the globalistic uh, things and the you know, summits and the uh, different... Uh, I mean, a lot of people think we're de facto already in a global system because of all the treaties and things that are going on. They're using global warming to try to usher in a one-world system. Uh, so, so I don't, I don't think all of these false Christs are agents directly of the ultimate antichrist. I think it's just characteristic. It sounds to me like Jesus is describing what things will characteristically be like during that time. So, good question. Anybody else? Yeah. Thanks. Jesus says, do not believe it, but there will be some that do believe. That believe the lie? Believe the false prophets. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So the previous slide in Matthew 23 and 25, you said to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Right. So can the elect be deceived? No, what I, what I mentioned there is the, the idea is that from the perspective of the deceivers, they're targeting these believers, trying to get them to take the mark, trying to get them to come on board. But, you know, God is saying it's not possible. Okay, so the elect in this verse cannot be deceived. Correct. So in 26 here, these are the people that haven't believed yet. Correct, yeah. So what Jesus is saying, again, he's, he's thrusting forward to a time which, of course, he knew as God was going to be at least 2,000 years later, but from the perspective of the disciples who were listening, may very well have been in their day for all they knew. He's just saying when you... Because they didn't, they didn't understand the, the inter-advent parenthesis of the church. They didn't understand the delay that was going to happen. As we talked about the gap of time in Daniel's prophecy, they didn't put all those pieces together yet. We didn't have any of the, uh, the epistolary literature where God unveiled new information in the progress of Revelation. So he's just thrusting them forward in time and saying, when you see all these things, watch out, be alert, because many will be deceived. Many won't. There's going to be competing uh, 
a competition for the souls of mankind. Remember, the 144,000 are marked out and go out to witness and share the gospel throughout that time. And many people are getting saved from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, Revelation 7. But many people are not. Many people are taking the mark and, and rejecting the gospel just like they do today. Now, he's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel because this is the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. So uh, what we find is that there's this interesting inversion, whereas at the first advent of Christ, the nation formally and the vast majority of its citizens in Israel rejected the Messiah and crowned him with thorns. The next time around, the nation formally will receive him, but there will still be a small number that reject him. And so... Uh, you know, it's kind of an inversion of what we saw at the first advent. So Jesus is speaking to not necessarily believers or unbelievers. He's speaking to everyone who's alive, saying, look, if you haven't believed the gospel yet, believe it and don't be led astray by deception. You know? Yeah. So, J.B., if you could apply that to the deception we're experiencing now, um, it seems to me that many people that are professing Christians are deceived. Is there a difference between their deception and what's being referred to here? Yeah, I think there are degrees of deception. Um, and the whole reason I wrote Spirit of the Antichrist, and I've spent 15 years researching that and going down the rabbit hole, is because I was angered at how deceived I had been. Mm -hmm. I think we've all been deceived on some level about reality. We all have believed lies. Satan is powerful. I mean, he's had you know, quite the co-conspirators to help him. The compulsory government schooling system, the university system, the media, the textbook industry. I mean, most of what we thought we knew is simply not true. So in that sense, we've all been deceived. And I think the task of believers is to constantly stay in the Word, run everything we see through the grid of Scriptures, ask questions, do the research, and try to strip away a lot of the lies that we've believed. But as it relates to our eternal destiny... There's really only one factor at stake. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, and in that moment of belief you become born again? Or are you going to reject the gospel and believe the lies, in this case, of the Antichrist, who's working according to the power of Satan? So the second that's two talks about he's going to send strong delusion, that many people will believe the lie. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about how Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, which is his ultimate M.O. But this is desperation time. So this is it. I mean, Satan, even though he doesn't believe God's word, he knows God's word. And he can put the pieces together and connect the dots just like we can. So when he sees you know, the rapture happen, he's going to know he's got his time is short. And so he's going to be doing everything he can to, to deceive people as it relates to the gospel. But you're right, there is a spirit of deception that, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.13, is getting worse and worse. And frankly, many believers are victims uh, of its, you know, of, of that target, of that deceit. Yeah. So the, the mark of the beast then during the seven-year tribulation, that's kind of the finite point, the demarcation point that says you're either a sheep or you're a goat. Yep. Okay. Once, once that's done, then the rest of it just unfolds. That's, uh, well, for that individual? For that individual? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the fish or cut bait moment, basically. But let's be clear. It's not that a person 
gains eternal life and becomes you know part of the family of God because they reject the mark. Right. It's by faith. It's always by grace through faith. Only by faith can someone be be saved right. eternally. But yeah, at that moment, uh, you know, those who you know uh, succumb to the ultimate deception, it's it's past the point of no return at that point. Yeah. Good good question. Anybody else? Uh, yeah. I don't know if it goes in this genre or not, but we have some dear friends in Israel, and as we converse with them, something that has startled me is that everybody in Israel has gotten the injection. Okay? Yeah, it's like 99%. It's yeah. unreal. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I never thought that that would happen in that country, and for no other reason than the Holocaust. But yet, here it is. We're not even in the end times yet, right? In the seven years haven't started. And then, is that a precursor for them? Well, you ask this question with like 30 seconds left in our time, <laughs> which, is, which is probably a very good thing because if I talked much about what I'm about to say, I would probably make some enemies. But we need to remember that even though God has a plan for national Israel, even though the nation of Israel is the apple of God's eye, even though it's the holy land, even though it's the place from which the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to rule and reign, and even though we love Israel because God loves Israel, the Jews in the power today are not there in belief. They're not there in belief. <laughs> and so... We sometimes just have this naive perspective that because you're a Jew, you must be good. By the way, we have the same American exceptionalistic view about our leaders, that somehow the depravity of man stops at the beltway. But if you don't think there's, around D.C., I mean, but if you don't think there's some Luciferian evil stuff taking place in both parts of the world, that's just not accurate. Now, that's why Jesus says, you know, in, or that's why Paul said in Romans 10, that before Israel can be regathered into the land and the deliverer come out of Zion, in Romans 9 through 11, they must first believe, because how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? So I do not believe that the return of Israel to land today is, is you know, returning in belief. The, the description that I read in, in the Olivet Discourse and in all the Old Testament prophets, like Ezekiel 36 and others, is it's a supernatural regathering that literally... Christ is going to send his angels to the four corners of the earth and they're going to physically you know, transcend time and matter and come be gathered into the land because they believe the gospel. And so, uh, so part of, so it does not surprise me in the least that Israel in many ways, and this is where I probably should have stopped 10 seconds ago, but is the tip of the spear in many ways in this Luciferian agenda right now. Right now. So, all right. Well, let's uh, let's stop so that they can, you know, get the lynch mob together uh, <laughs> and gathered, and we will uh, take a break and pick up with worship here in about 15 minutes. <laughs>